my brother couldn't see very well and he asked for a torch and the jackaroo said, I don't have one, but here's a lighter. And I'm kind of trying to help in my own way, peering over the, the edge of the pit and my brother's got the lighter in the pit and he flicks it and the whole thing goes up in a fireball. And that was uh, literally the end of life as we knew it. My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Rick Morton is a writer and social commentator, and at the young age of 32, he's already published his memoir, A Hundred Years of Dirt. It might strike you as slightly early to write a memoir, but there's two great reasons for it. Rick has lived a fascinating life, and he's a damn good storyteller. A Hundred Years of Dirt, you can think of as Australia's version of J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy. And it's a delight to have Rick here on the podcast today. Andrew, thank you so much for having me. Real pleasure. Now, let's start at the beginning. Your family owned nearly one two-hundredth of Australia, mm-hmm. uh, an area the size of a, of a European nation. How did that come about? It's a really good question. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, yeah, the area the size of Belgium. Um, it's not Liechtenstein. It's bigger than that, uh, 40,000 square kilometres in total. Um, and, you know, my, my father's family, my grandfather, they were the squatocracy, essentially. They were the early settlers on the Birdsville track. Um, most of them were from South Australia um, and before that, Scotland. <laughs> um, good Protestant, hardworking people who didn't know how to tell each other they loved uh, their family members. Mm. And, you know, my grandfather was a real uh, workhorse and he was a real vicious workhorse and he knew how to amass land and property and power. And he did it, um, and he did it on the back um, eventually of his own children who worked for free for him for a really long time, so it kept costs down. Um, it's kind of, you know, the kind of people that live out there in outback Australia and in, you know, he had these properties in Northern Territory, South Australia, Queensland and New South Wales, so they got around. The kind of people that live out there are, are they're kind of moulded to the elements. Um, they are mm. as tough as the landscape, and I think that's how you get by Um, with, you know, this kind of landscape that can and will kill you. Your grandfather, George Morton, referred to your father, Rodney, as Acre. Hmm. How did you get that nickname? Uh, Because my... So to to understand the nickname, you need to understand that most of the Morton men are, I write in the book, barrels with legs. You know, they are big-boned, heavy people who do not tread lightly on the earth, and I happen to take after them, unfortunately. (laughs) My dad did not, however. My dad is the tiniest man you've ever met. He's small, he's scrawny, uh, he was a jockey um, in country races, and because they owned on the main property 1.6 million acres, an acre was nothing uh, to my grandfather. It was puny and small. And, you know, I think that says everything about the relationship they had. I mean, my father was mocked from the earliest age because he never... Even though he was as tough as any of them, he never fit in with any of them based on his stature alone. So acre it was. does speak to the context, uh, given that most of us are pretty happy to have a quarter of an acre yes, right. uh, to, to, to call our own. Kill for 10 square metres. Exactly. Uh, your grandfather was, was not kind to your father. Uh, how did you treat him? 
No, in fact, I don't think he was kind to anyone, really. But my father bore the brunt of that relationship. And I think because my father was the second youngest and the youngest boy, uh, he was picked on from the moment he was born. I mean, you know, for laughs, they used to throw him on the back of bucking broncos when he was two or three and screaming to get off and terrified. And as he grew up... He was um, physically abused. He, you know, at the age of five, I think he was thrown into a wall by my grandfather and had his spleen ruptured. And he was shipped off to hospital to emergency in Adelaide, twelve hundred kilometres away, on his own. Uh, later on in life, my grandfather threw I mean, a camp. Terrifying for a five. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's something he never grew out of. Um, you know, certainly as he got older, uh, none of this changed. The boys, the three of them that slept in an outhouse. Uh, on the station, like in men's quarters. They all slept under the bed at night because they were terrified that my grandfather would come in in the middle of the night and beat them because that's what he did. And he did it for fun. It wasn't, you know, uh, I've been reading Jess Hill's book, um, See What You Made Me Do, and there's a lot of men who kind of exhibit this power without knowing it because they Mm. have a hunger for power. For my grandfather, from all of my inquiries, he did it because he enjoyed it. And, you know, he would deliberately set up survivor-style games with his children um, in one case, he would send, you know, one boy out on foot in the home paddock, which is very big, uh, to get the one milking cow. And then he'd send another boy without knowing the other one had already gone on horseback. And knowing what would happen to them if they didn't bring the milking cow back, uh, as in they'd get beaten, um, they fought each other to be the one that got it. And he would just sit back and, and, and laugh. Sounds a horrible way of, uh, of behaving. Uh, how did that shape your father? It turned him into a very scared, anxious man with a lot of a lot of mental issues. I think um, one certainly that he was never able to give voice to, um, but he was uh, he had a real thing about his size, and yet ironically tried to keep himself as thin as possible. Um, so he would often throw up food. Um, you know, after the book came out, uh, someone got in touch after hearing a radio interview, and they went to boarding school with him for two years. And it was the first time I'd ever met anyone who knew my father that young. Mm. And I asked her, I said, what was he like? And she said, exactly as you described, he was, you know, he was frightened. You know, he was, there was pain in his eyes. And I think it turned him into a man that was uh, unable to voice emotions. Um, Certainly he compartmentalised all of this pain and trauma and just kept it at the back of his mind and, and kept going, not knowing the damage that that would do later on, I think. The story of how your fa- father got to boarding school says something about the power dynamics within, within the household. Tell us about that. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, none of the kids had been sent to formal schooling. In, in fact, you know, normally I did school of distance education when I was growing up out there, and a lot of the kids did, but they didn't even do that. I mean, they were effectively workers for my grandfather until my grandfather um, assaulted uh, an Aboriginal woman. Now, we don't know the full details. Um, some in the family think it was sexual assault. Others think it was physical assault. Either way, it's um, a horrific thing to have to contend with in your own family history. And my grandmother, Laurie, who was a really tough and pragmatic woman who loved her kids but in her own tough way, and she saw leverage for the first time in her life. She saw the ability to uh, get her kids sent off to school because grandfather, my grandfather George would never do it. And so she gave him an alibi uh, and got him off the charges. And in return, he shipped the kids off to a very expensive boarding school in Adelaide. Um, but even then, you know, my father only got two years of it. Mm-hmm. You yourself uh, grew, grew up on, uh, on another cattle station. Uh, how do you remember your, uh, your, your early days there? It was the best childhood. I mean, really, it was. I mean, 
My father was always embarrassed about the one we moved to because it was a small cattle station in comparison. It was still a 1,000 square kilometres, um, but it was tiny to him, <laughs> which I just find crazy. So 1,000 kilometres down each side. Square kilometres, 100, yeah. 100 each 100 side. 100 each side, yeah. Sorry. So it's, greater, it's bigger than the Greater Sydney Basin, right. essentially, um, and it was all ours. And for the longest time, it was just me and my brother Toby and my mum and my dad, and occasionally we had jackaroos and... Um, the world was our oyster. Um, we didn't know much about what was outside, but we didn't need to because we had little motorbikes and horses and we went shooting wild pigs and chasing kangaroos and keeping pets, um, you know, following wedge-tailed eagles to their nest, which we got photos of. And it was just, you know, it's almost like that, uh, it's almost like unschooling in a way. Mm. <laughs> um, we just, we had the world and the environment that taught us everything we needed to know and we had fun while we did it. You were doing uh, distance education by school of the year. How, how does that work in practice? Um, a lot like this, actually. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> although not in Kungawan, I must admit. Um, no, I mean, back in those days, I get to say that now because I'm over the age of 30, uh, we did it over, well, they call it school of the year because it was over the wireless radio. Mm. And so uh, remarkably, there's a there's kind of bases for the, for the teachers and the nearest one to us was in Charleville, which is about 350 kilometres to the east. And it's funny because I've been to the ABC studios in Canberra and they look a lot like the School of Distance Education studios right. for our teachers. And we would have a half-hour class, um, I think, each day where, you know, in my class I think there were six or seven kids and the teacher would talk to us over the radio and if we wanted to answer a question, we had to shout our name out. So I was just constantly shouting Ricky into um, uh, a wireless radio all day long. And <laughs> as soon as those lessons were over, though, it was up to us whether we would did the coursework in our books that they mailed out or whether we just took off and did more cattle station things, and it was frequently the latter. <laughs> it is striking that uh, your childhood has so much of that uh, free-range aspect to it that, uh, that educators are now saying kids are, are missing out on. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about some of, the, uh, some of the trauma in a moment, but uh, are there things that you think uh, parents could learn from today about how uh, you and your brother and sister were raised? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think... I mean, I don't, I've never wanted to kind of tell a story entirely about misery. I mean, my, the first part of my childhood was absolute bliss. And I think it taught me to be, you know, I was quite an anxious kid, but my brother kind of just dragged me along to all of these things. He rode our motorbike into numerous gullies, snapped the axle on another while I was on it. Um, all of these things. Having said that, you know, uh, I, I think it's beautiful to be out in the world. Um, but my friends have just had started having kids themselves and I was with... Um, Hamish on the weekend and I don't know how anyone could leave their kids alone on a cattle station <laughs> uh, like I look back on it and go, I'm like well, I should have been dead 10 times over um, you know there were poisonous or venomous sorry snakes uh, there were wild pigs with tusks the size of men's hands who were quite aggressive um, there you know <laughs> animals will kill you the landscape will kill you um, some of the, the the cattle will kill you like it's just I mean it's an amazing existence. Um, I don't know if I would let my kid do it now, I must admit. <laughs> but it's interesting too because uh, you're painting a picture of a place that is much more dangerous than the typical urban environment in which most of us raise our kids uh, and yet we in urban environments are much less likely to allow our kids uh, to, to roam uh, even just on their own in the, in, in the backyard. Yeah, being no. It's yeah. actually, I think the, 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 the real difference is that country people trust people but mm. not the landscape. Um, urban people are fine with the landscape. They don't trust people. Um, and I think that is the major difference. Um, you know, we never worried when there was no one else around, really. But even when there were, I mean, you know, we just 
run off with the jackaroos for the day and do whatever they did and we were fine but it was the landscape the vista that was really dangerous and just ask burke and wills i mean they died mm. not far from where i grew up so <laughs> they didn't do so well you draw a dividing line through your childhood at the age of seven. Uh, tell us what happened on, on that, li- that line. Yeah, so, I mean, up until that age, I mean, it was idyllic in every way. Um, it was an adventure. And then the adventure turned dark. And it, um, as these things often do, they, um, it happened in, in one kind of hinge moment. And that was Father's Day 1994 when uh, me and my brother were out shooting crows um, another thing there were guns (laughs) wouldn't let my kid around a gun uh and it was so hot and we had to come back into the shed because it was just you know it's september but even out there it gets up to 40 degrees um regularly that early in the year and we were helping uh under the shade of the shed helping a jackaroo fix a motorbike and he lost one of the bolts from the bike into a car servicing pit and my brother being helpful because you know we all wanted to be helpful uh went into the pit to try and get it and the pit i'm I mean, I, they're different to the motor racing car pits in that you drive the car over the top of these things and they're the, mm. the, the height of a human, a human man. And you go in there and there's oil and petrol fumes from decades. And my brother couldn't see very well and he asked for a torch and the jackaroo said, I don't have one, but here's a lighter. And I'm kind of trying to help in my own way, peering over the, the edge of the pit and my brother's got the lighter in the pit and he flicks it and the whole thing goes up in a fireball. And that was uh, literally the end of life as we knew it. He he must have been too small to get him to get himself out of this yes, uh, horrendous yeah. situation. Well, he, yeah, he couldn't. And and the jackaroo, I mean, he was so hot to touch the jackaroo, couldn't grab him out. He tried and burnt himself in the process. You know, my brother's. You know, my brother used his right arm to shield his face, um, but he's got holes in his jeans. His shirt's melted to his back. Um, it's it's quite bad, and my dad's had to come running, not knowing what's happened, from mm. the the stables three hundred meters away, and has just hoisted him out in that kind of superhuman parental effort that you hear about sometimes on the news. And I remember my father cradling him in his arms and just seeing the skin hanging from my brother. Um, I say like curtains in the book, but it's more like glad wrap. It's translucent, and and I and my dad's running back to the homestead to get help. Mm. which again comes over the wireless radio. And I remember kind of half running with him, half not knowing what I would do if I kept up with him and just knowing even then as a seven-year-old that my entire life was about to change. I just didn't know the, the contours of how it would, but I knew that it would. How did uh, Toby get get to treatment? I mean, you've yeah. got to get to a, to a good hospital as quick as you well, can. Well, there's nothing there, is there? <laughs> so, I mean, the nearest good, well, nearest hospital is 350 kilometres away in Charleville. Um, the Burns Ward in the Royal Ch- Brisbane Children's is 1,500 kilometres away. Um, and so, I mean, one of the great marvels of living in the outback is that we're allowed, to, we're able to do it, essentially because, A, the Royal Flying Doctor Service exists, and B, they invented a thing called the medical chest. And so every station's got one. And I remember it quite clearly because we had to use it quite a lot. Um, it was just this big olive green tin box and you open it and there's all these little staged drawers mm. with medicines that you couldn't get as a normal person in a pharmacy. But because you're out there, you've got to have them. Yes. Um, and the doctors, while they send the plane, and that's what we had done, my brother's covered in towels on the schoolroom floor, um, wet towels and shivering. And his head swelling up because the the burns have cauterized his skin and the fluid can't get oh. out. And they're administering instructions over the radio, saying, you know, take a number fifteen from the box and draw up however many mils and inject it into his thigh. Um, the neighbours we radioed the neighbours for help, and they've come from forty minutes away. 
um, to help mum and dad because they're obviously a little bit more stable at this point. <laughs> mm. And then the Royal Flying Doctor Service had been at, uh, the plane had been at the Birdsville races. And so they've had to come back via their base in Charleville, refuel, get the doctor from town, um, and then fly out to our station and then land. And by the time they've landed, it's late in the afternoon, almost dusk. They've decided to stabilise my brother on the runway um, with the drip because doing so in, in flight would be quite difficult. Mm. And by the time they they realise that they're ready to go, it's almost dark and they're not allowed to fly at dark because, well, they're not allowed to take off or land because kangaroos, it's very yes. dangerous. So me and my dad have run and filled up these old beetroot cans with kerosene and we've lit them along the runway to provide kind of guiding lights and they've kind of snuck off into the air uh, just before total darkness. Um, probably bent the rules quite a lot <laughs> that day. And I remember, I should point out, I always forget this because my poor sister had just, Lauren had just been born. Mm. So she's three weeks old. And I remember mum climbing onto that plane following my brother on the stretcher with my sister and then I've gone to follow her and then she's had to tell me that there's no room and I've got to stay at home with my dad. And I remember the plane taking off and then literally nothing. Like I just, I don't remember leaving the airstrip that night. And I don't remember anything for at least a week. Um, I think it's two weeks, although I've always had trouble piecing it together in my head. So the trauma just wipes out. That, it's uh, just that gone. Yeah. yeah, like it's like someone's cut the tape. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and I realise why. I mean, I've, I've done a lot of reading about this stuff <laughs> as mm. I've gotten older. And it's a protective mechanism. Um, but it's, it's a funny thing because it's like it's done that for that moment, but then it kicks back in later on when there's something that's even more traumatising in my world that I can't forget. What was that? Um, so when my, you know, my entire family, bar me, my, my father are uh, in Brisbane in hospital in the Burns Ward, my brother's recovering um, and my sister's there with my mum still breastfeeding and uh, I'm at home alone on the station, like in the most isolated you could ever imagine, this seven-year-old kid. And I remember one night I thought, I'm going to surprise Dad when I come out of the shower. I'm just going to like yell from behind a door and really get him. <laughs> and I got myself instead, unfortunately. So, like, I'd snuck down. No one could hear me. I sprung around the door in the living room and I find our 19-year-old governess sitting on his lap. And, you know, she's shocked. There's this great, um, this great story about <laughs> Noah Webster, the, uh, the um, lexicographer when he was putting together the dictionary in America in 18-something or other, where his wife comes into the... the study to find him with the secretary on his lap and she says Noah I am surprised and he says no my dear you are astonished it is we who are surprised <laughs> and I feel like that kind of mirrored out in my own life as well and so that was the first time and then a couple of days later I remember catching them um, after dinner um, she must have been eating with us but I don't remember that mm. and I remember uh, catching them in the kitchen kissing and because I was trying to return my dessert bowl mm. And they didn't see me. They didn't see me, but um, I saw them and I kind of snuck back out and I knew something was horribly wrong. It's weird, though, because as a seven-year-old, I didn't know what the word affair meant. And I didn't know, I didn't have the, the vocabulary for what I was witnessing, but I knew it was wrong. And I remember that night um, crying quite heavily in my bed and Dad walking past and, and asking what was wrong. And I said to him quite directly, I said, you don't love mummy anymore, do you? And he said, of course I do, and then tried to reassure me. But, like, I didn't tell him what I'd seen or witnessed, and I knew that he was lying. And, you know, carrying that secret around as a child so young is probably the worst thing that's ever happened to me. <laughs> and it's contributed to a lot of uh, ill ease throughout my life, I think. 
What happened when your mum and dad came home? Yeah, again, a bit of a blur. I remember being at home with her and the way she tells it, and I interviewed her for the book, and she's always told me this story as well growing up. She's like, she came home. I didn't know how to tell her, so I didn't. And she had to find out um, for herself. Um, Dad has still never admitted to the affair, but he'd gone and hid the governess (laughs) um, at a dam half an hour away from the homestead. And so mum's there and there's a big showdown she thought about grabbing one of the rifles. This is a year just before Port Arthur, two mm. years before mm. Port Arthur. So she thought about grabbing one of the 11 guns that just hang in the office and shooting them both. And she maintains to this day, she's a, a religious woman, a Catholic, and she maintains to this day that there was a little voice, an angel, telling her not to do it because then the kids will lose everyone mm. and they'll be stuck with Dad and the governess. So uh, we just get kicked out um, and we accept our fate. Um, Dad freezes the bank accounts. There is, uh, you know, Mum has never worked a normal job except for David Jones when she left high school at the age of 15. She's had no regular employment since except working for free on the cattle station. She has no savings of her own, uh, no separate income stream, no resources, and then we get booted out of the only home we've ever known and suddenly she's got... Three kids, one of them's a newborn, one of them's newly burned, and the other one's this weird little kid here. (laughs) And we've got nowhere to go. And so we we kind of get forced into emergency public housing in Charleville. Um, And we start from the bottom. How stressful do you remember that time being for your mum? I I can't I remember it being very stressful for her but I, and I haven't since and I will never be able to fully understand how hard that was for her. I mean I've got an intellectual understanding of it now being an adult and having had my own dramas but I've never had three kids attached and mm. I've got more cultural access to the world than she ever had. Um I mean she was completely alone uh completely and and she didn't she wasn't particularly well educated so she didn't even have the lexicon to talk openly about what was happening. Mm. She had no one really to talk to except for me, um, who was the most mature out of the three of us. Um, But I know that from that point on, I mean, there were times when we heard her sobbing in her room, uh, not just in that year, but in the years to follow, all through high school, all through primary school. Um, And watching her do her sums on her little notepad because she didn't have any money and she had to figure out how to pay for everything. Um, You know, I think even if she never said anything, I think that all seeped into my head anyway. Like I knew that we were in dire straits for a really long period of time, but I will never really be able to fully understand what it felt like for her. You use your family's own experience to explore the way in which poverty changes people's outlook. Mm. Uh, You have a quote from a 19th century scholar of poverty in New York, Jacob Rees, there's nothing in the prospect of a sharp, unceasing battle for the bare necessities of life to encourage looking ahead, everything to discourage the effort. Improvidence and wastefulness are natural results. Tell us a little bit more about how that experience of poverty uh, narrows uh, people's worldview and and, and what you're able to do. I I mean, I read that quote years ago and it more accurately describes my experience with money than mum's, but even even so, because mum, you know, if 
you know, you know how they try to split poor people into groups, like the deserving poor and the undeserving poor? Absolutely. Um, people would put my mum in the deserving poor category, even though I don't think there is a distinction. And, you know, the wastefulness and improvidence that comes from sheer unceasing poverty is is borne out by the lack of choices you have. I mean, you know, mum was the best money manager um, that I've ever come across. But even so, she could never take advantage of the two-for-one deals at the mm. supermarket because we didn't have enough money to get two-for-one. We could only get one. So you pay more per unit for those things. And that's not just... And people go, well, yeah, but how often do you, does that really add up? I'm like, well, five cents means everything. <laughs> like we, She knew her bank balance down to the last five cents. Um, there are... You know, when you miss a bill, um, you pay the late fee and that causes another spiral. And later on in life, I, having watched her struggle, but do the right things, so to speak, and then mm. I, I, I then struggled myself and did all the wrong things, and I very much got caught up in the attitude that, you know, I grew up never expecting there to be money. Um, it's almost like it didn't belong. Mm. And then, mm. throughout my life, whenever I've had minor windfalls, whether it's a tax return or, or uh, a check from some competition or something like that, I've almost been in a rush to get rid of it <laughs> it's almost like it cannot stay because that is against the world order right um and and i'm one of these people that would spend my money on other people uh, just to get it out the door and i've done it again recently <laughs> like i i just uh i will shout everyone at the bar i'll buy a, a new tv and and you know poor people get blamed for this behavior but if you look at um the kind of decision making in their own heads why wouldn't they capitalise on a windfall? You know, when Kevin Rudd hands out at $900, that, you know, people have still not forgotten that, by the way. <laughs> um, people went out and they brought something that they didn't necessarily need or they didn't pay it on bills because bills is life. Um, and so when you've got these small hiccups or, or little windfalls, you buy something that you know that you would never otherwise be able to get. Mm. And occasionally that happened with mum and us as well. Like, you know... Um, if uh, you know, if we won money on a scratchy, it was the only gambling we did. We very occasionally bought a scratchy. Um, it didn't go on bills because <laughs> that was that was life. Yes, um, and we wanted a break from that. Yes, the economist uh, Sandal Moraluran has a lovely book on scarcity, which talks about poverty as being a, a cognitive tax uh, mm. and all kinds of fascinating experiments in which you put people in situations of scarcity uh, and you see them make. Uh, decisions which are much more fo focused on the short term. And, Correct. Uh, it, it's, it seems as though that kind of narrowing effect is is one of the one of the really important things to understand if we're going to going to do something more with uh, with um, uh, helping people break out of poverty. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of judgment that's attached to that. But I mean, the brain, you know, in terms of I was talking to a psychologist last night for for a story and about trauma and mental health, and the brain when it's trying to protect you doesn't care about 20 years time it doesn't care about the future it cares about now mm. what will keep you alive now now in the old days when we were being hunted by saber-toothed tigers or trying to hunt other things that was very much uh, a, a practical survival situation nowadays it's much more theoretical but the brain still acts like now is the only thing that matters i mean mm. it's you know we've got the prefrontal cortex which does a lot of the um the higher order thinking um, but when you have been stressed and starved and afraid your entire life, it's the amygdala that's in charge. That's fight or flight. And the amygdala doesn't give two hoots about tomorrow. The amygdala cares about today. 
And I think there's a lot of decisions that get made when people have been cognitively taxed in poverty um, that robs them entirely of the ability, um, even if they don't know it, to make decisions for their future self. I mean, I make jokes all the time that future Rick can go stuff himself <laughs> because he ain't my problem. Yes. Uh, I'm my problem right now. And obviously, um, I always catch up to future Rick eventually, and it's not fun, but um, it's just not the way I think. And the, in understanding all of this is enormously difficult for somebody who does the supermarket shopping without ever bothering to look at the prices on the shelves, yeah. uh, who hasn't experienced that, uh, that, that uh, state of, of having to balance the bills or to, to choose as to which, which bill to pay. Uh, so I think it does contribute to that notion of us and them mm. uh, that that poverty is just a a, a, diff- a different a different situation. You have this quote about uh, from Tim Winton: "There are those who see poverty and discern only a failure of character." Yeah, <laughs> they can go to hell. <laughs> no, no, I'm trying to be more nuanced and understanding in my in my in my life, and I can understand. I mean, it's easy to forget, even having been from that world, how hard it is, mm. and I think. One of the reasons why I think I've still got something worthy to say, even though I've made it as a middle-class adult, is that my mum is still in that world. And so I've never had the chance to forget because, Mm. you know, we still have those phone calls and she still agonises over money and her hours at work and whether she's got enough to make ends meet. And so I never had the chance to leave it fully behind, whereas a lot of people who have grown up that way do. Mm. And it's it's typically human to forget... um, just how taxing it is and I mean I will never fully be able to describe it but it's like your entire every waking moment is taken up with little decisions that are life and death essentially it's like you know you wake up in the morning and if you're in the city it's like well I've got to get to my job appointment Um, but that's two dollars fifty one way on the bus five dollars return but that sets me back um, for the thing I've got to do later on this afternoon, which is a medical appointment. So obviously I'll skip the medical appointment, but then that comes back to bite you um, four years, five years down the track because you didn't get checked up on time. But even then, you know, there are, you know, hospital parking is $10 a day, $30 a day in the city. Or you've got all these other little decisions like, well, I could buy healthy food, but it's more expensive um, and I don't know how to preserve it for longer. So instead we're just going to get frozen meals and then my kids end up being overweight. Or they're sedentary. Um, certainly, my problem. I discovered meat pies very shortly after moving to Boona, um, and they were amazing because they were simple and easy. And then you've got this kind of mental cloud that hangs over you all day long, all night, all through the next day, forever. About you know, every day is a new battle. You wake up going right. We've just got to get through to sundown. Mm. Um, and then you do it again and again and again, and you don't have time to think about anything else. You don't have time to plan. You don't have time to um, sit down and actually go, right, what am I doing wrong? What can I do better? Um, There isn't any of that. And I think um, when you leave that world behind, it's very hard to remember um, that this is, it's like going to the gym 24 hours a day. Um, You try doing it. The other aspect of poverty that you talk about is is all of the assumed knowledge that's there in a middle-class world. And I was reminded of uh, uh, the point in Hillbilly Elegy where J.D. Vance is at uh, Yale and he sits down to a formal dinner uh, with a whole lot of knives and forks on yeah. either side of his plate. And he has to leave the dinner, go to the bathrooms, call his girlfriend and say, what do I do with all of this cutlery? <laughs> uh, and uh, I remember recounting that story to my kids who were then... Um, eight and six and four and, and even the 
uh, four-year-old said, oh, I think you'd probably just start with the cutler and the outside and work, <laughs> work their, their way in. So there's some kind of... I don't remember having taught them no. that, but there's some kind of odd sense in which the the environment in which my kids are moved yep. is one in which they're perfect. They'd be perfectly comfortable sitting down to a formal dinner and, and managing to do this. Yep. JD Vance is is 20 and is uh, doesn't doesn't have have that. You have a, sort of an, an interestingly similar experience because uh, you attended Bond University after you uh, uh, left school. Uh, how did uh, what did you see there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think whatever happened, whatever university I ended up going to, which was um, uh, an achievement in itself. You know, I got accepted to UQ, but then I ended up getting this scholarship to Bond, um, which was only a half scholarship, but it came with a cadetship at a newspaper, which is all I wanted, like a job. And in my poor world, a job meant more than anything. Um, but I think no matter what university, it could have been UQ, it could have been University of Sydney, QUT, whatever, I still would have had the same shock when I encountered all these people from a world I didn't know. It's just that at Bond it was even more pronounced mm. because they were exclusively almost rich um, and some of them were obscenely, obscenely wealthy, you know, daughters of billionaires and, and you know, parents who had hundreds of millions of dollars. In fact, I became friends with one of them. And so I come out of this incredibly sheltered, you know, poverty, we think about it as a financial poverty, but there are other kinds of poverty and certainly mine was cultural. Um, and it's not just because we were poor, but it's partly because of my parents' lack of education, partly geography, isolation. Um, uh, some people might argue it's just a Queensland thing. I don't think that's true. <laughs> I think it's a, a geography of being away from the city. Mm. And, you know, we had a Chinese restaurant in our country hometown that we moved to, but it was one of those ones that did, you know, had the, the, <laughs> the Chinese meals on one page. And then if you wanted a quarter chicken chips, you could just get that as well, which I frequently did. Um, they didn't even bother asking if you wanted chopsticks and because uh, <laughs> they knew to, you didn't to, to chips and chopsticks yeah exactly um and so i got to this university where uh, you know i was just thrown into this world where everyone knew how to do everything mm. they'd been brought up at these fancy dinners they certainly knew how to use chopsticks they knew what teppanyaki was um i thought it was just the name of the restaurant um but it's a style of eating um as i soon found out and so part of this scholarship that i applied for well i applied for another one first which was the the big one. And so they do this whole song and dance. They take you away during your school, year 12 school holidays for a week to Bond University with 33 other kids. And they put you through, it's a lot like The Apprentice um, on television. And then they take you out to all these dinners and you've got to wear suits, which I didn't own. And I didn't even realise that I needed a suit. Mm. And then I go to Teppanyaki, which I'd never heard of. And they're flinging food at you um, and cooking on this hot plate and there's bowls of rice and there's these chopsticks that I have no idea how to use. And honestly, mm. I, it's the most shaming experience. Like people, I laugh about it now, uh, but even into my mid-20s when people, my friends knew it was an issue that I couldn't use chopsticks and they'd try and teach me at a restaurant with uh, uh, someone who was kind of in town for the night who I'd never met before. So yes. I'm deeply embarrassed. And they're just like, no, no, just just watch, just watch this. And I actually remember, this is only five years ago, just getting so angry that I just told them to shut up. Yes. Um, because it's it's like a failure of education and you feel dumb and out of place. And it's just a reminder of, I think a symbolic reminder of all of the other things about which you are not worthy. Mm. And what a world. How could your friends have done that better? I think... So for a listener who's, yeah. who, who is in one of those privileged, privileged situ situations, um, what, what would it, what, what's the right way for them to handle it? A really good question. Um it's, I mean, shame is such a curious force <laughs> that I don't know that anything would have made it 
fabulous. Yeah. But I think doing it one on one, doing it when you know, if you if you want to explain to someone how the world works, don't do it in front of people they don't know, mm. um, uh, because they're trying to people are trying to preserve face. Um, that's what uh, we all do in life, and no one wants to admit to failure. So I think you know, just doing it gently, doing it in private one-on-one away from prying eyes because that's when, you know, shame is multiplied mm. when you think other people are watching. I mean, you have it anyway even when no one's watching. So there's no no easy way to do it, unfortunately. <laughs> when did you stop feeling like an outsider, Rick? I didn't. <laughs> I still haven't. <laughs> you still do? Yeah. No, I don't. Uh, I've never felt at home anywhere. I've certainly never felt – I still don't feel like I belong uh, in the world I now am in. Uh, you know, I wrote this book and it's done really amazingly. And now I've been on a year and a half long tour of writers' festivals. Mm. And Do you still have imposter syndrome at writers' festivals? Oh, oh, incredibly. I mean, people come up to me now, now. They never mm. did before, mind you, but they come up to me now and want to talk about books and literature. And I am like, I, I haven't read that well. Like, I only just read um, Grapes of Wrath. Um, and, and I'm trying to get through these books that I think I should have read. And it's a real point of soreness for me because, you know, a lot of uh, people I know grew up in these houses with these giant bookshelves Mm. and parents who were lawyers or philosophers even who discussed this stuff all the time. And we just didn't. And it's almost like I'm kind of mad now because people are like, oh, now you've written a book, you're worthy. And I'm like, well, nothing's changed. Um, it's just that now you're willing to accept me into this world and I don't think I belong here. Mm. Um, I don't belong. I mean, journalists are classic outsiders, right? We, well, we style ourselves. Most of them are in, quite inside the beltway. Um, but we like to think we're outsiders. But I, I genuinely have never felt like I belonged. Yeah. I didn't in Queensland. I didn't in Sydney when I lived there. I don't in Canberra. I don't uh, belong in the world I've come from anymore because I'm too cultured <laughs> and I know too much. Um, but I don't, and I don't think I'll ever be fully welcomed into the world in which I uh, should, uh, or th- that the trajectory on I'm, I'm on would have me in. Mm. I just don't think I fit. Um, so outside of status, um, whether I deserve it or not, I feel like I've I've still got it. Yes. Um, and like I know I'm, I, you know, by all accounts on paper. I'm 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 middle class. I'm one of the cultural elites, as um, some people would like to brand me, um, and I get that. Um, but I think, and I say in the book, you know, I have grown into this world, but I still have the mind and uh, body, in some respects, as a poor child who hated himself. And so I just don't think that ever really truly leaves you, no matter how much you work on it. Yes, I think about uh, Gore Vidal's autobiography, where he says that by the time he turned eighteen. He hadn't read everything in the world, but he'd read enough of everything that he felt he knew how to place any book that he came, came upon. And this is somebody who's sort of one of, part of one of the great American families, uh, family connections in politics, able to attend the best schools, read, read whatever he wants. Uh, and just that, that sense that you're in command of the world, which mm. then leads him to writing novels and plays as, as pretty much as soon as he, as soon as he hits university. That, yeah. uh, that, that sense of, of entitlement. The confidence these people have. And I don't yes. say that. I mean, I don't, I don't say this in a judgmental way because if that was my world, I would 100% be doing it. Um, all I've ever wanted to do is write. Mm. But the confidence to just say, here it is. Like, I mean, I've been writing this book for 10 years and I never showed it to anyone because I didn't think it was worth it. 
um, I didn't think I deserved it, even though I knew I've, I've got, I was telling someone recently that I've got this sh- very short-term imposter syndrome, but a very long-term weird faith that everything would be okay. And I think it's, it's, mm. not, a, it's not a confidence in myself, but it's a, a necessary belief that I will be successful and do well, not because I want it, but because it has to be that way. Like mm. I have to, I have to have achieved something so I can give my mum a retirement. I have to have been successful so that she doesn't spend the last 30 years of her life living the way that she spent the first 60 years, which is in penury, really. Um, and so they've got this weird dichotomy of like this short-term, just failure, failure, failure mindset and long-term, no, nah, it'll be fine. Mm. And, I, you know, mum still laughs. I called her when, on Sunday when I was driving back from Sydney and she's like, I just wish I could win the lottery, Dar, which has always been the refrain in our life, always. I just wish I could win. And I'm, I just said to her, not for the first time, I'm like, mum, forget the lottery. Like, we are your lottery. Like, we are it. <laughs> like, there is no lottery coming. We are, we are it and we're doing okay and we're going to get you through it and you will have all the nice things that you deserve. Um, but it ain't because of the lottery. It's because mm. we've made our own luck and it just has to work out like that. How much was of, of the issues we've talked about come down to sexuality? When did you when mm. did you first figure out you were gay? Oh God, um, it would have been helpful if it was earlier, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I think I you had I, some relationships with girls. Uh, yeah, I had two in high school. Um, relationships is a generous word to use for them, <laughs> but they were my girlfriends. Um, by by the context of high school relationships, they were my girlfriends. Uh, didn't didn't go well. Um, both in both cases, they were essentially a shield. That I was, you know, one of them I was roped into completely by accident because Telstra had just introduced those three-way phone calls on landlines, which was a huge technological advance for the uh, early 2000s. And a friend of mine called me and asked whether I liked this girl in my class, and I said, of course I do, not thinking at all romantically about it. And then, surprise, she's on the other end of the line being silent, and um, then I had a girlfriend, and I'm like, well, okay. (laughs) I guess this is how kind of trap we do, yeah. And um, you know, I've never been so terrified in my life as when you know that that friend who set us up would then become the policewoman uh, for our relationship. Like she'd come up to me at like a big lunch, and she'd be like, "You're not holding Brittany's hand. You haven't kissed Brittany today. What's wrong? Don't you love her?" And I'm like, "Well, it's a bit more complicated than that, unfortunately, Danielle." <laughs> um, and so I was, you know, I think I knew that I was gay in high school. I certainly knew that I was attracted to other boys. But it always seemed like something I would be able to hide. And so I had a remarkably good high school experience. I mean, I, sh- I say this as a joke at writer festivals now. I should have been bullied, <laughs> but I wasn't. Um, I, I had a lot of really good friends around me. I was constantly in fear that they would find out that I was gay. Um, and there were some close calls, including once when... Um, I remember I had a dictaphone because I wanted to be a journalist and all I ever wanted was a dictaphone. And so when we had to do this group assignment for drama, I lent my dictaphone to some other kids after I'd done mine and when they gave it back to me, they didn't erase the tape. And on the tape, they're kind of discussing whether they think I'm gay or not. And I just remember being just absolutely mortified and just mm. going, I think like, this is the end. Um, my whole world as I know it is, is dust. And so I knew, um, but it wasn't, crushing to me because I thought well I've never had really strong feelings about anyone and so obviously I can just marry a woman and have kids and it will be fine Um, and that artifice um, served me well until about the age of 20 when I met someone who I actually decided that I did really love Um, and he was a boy 
And then I'm like, oh, okay, this is what feeling something feels mm. like. And then I realized then in that moment that I could never pretend otherwise. And it uh, brought me undone. You write in the book that I didn't know any gay people. My friends didn't know any gay people. Uh, what was it like when those in Boona, your, your, your family and friends in Boona, found out you were gay? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the worst thing, I mean, uh, I say we didn't know any gay people. We didn't know any out gay people. Um, yes. As far as it's I know. It's an important distinction. Yes, as far as I know, there are at least four others in Boona. <laughs> um, and the thing I never wanted to become, there was this one kid who we never knew for sure, but he'd finished high school, finished year 12, and he'd moved to Brisbane, and then he'd become gay. And we all spoke about it in whispers, like, oh, my God, he's gay now. Um, that's what happens when you move to Brisbane. Um, and my greatest fear was that I didn't want to become that guy. Like, Rick moved to the Gold Coast, and now he's gay. Um, we've lost another one to the great pool of uh, urbane society. Um, but I, I ended up kind of slowly after... I mean, I had a massive breakdown, really, and I couldn't avoid the truth anymore. And... And it's the thing people don't understand about secrets, and it's not just about sexuality, but secrets will eat you up from the inside. Mm. And I had to just eventually just tell. And so I started slowly, slowly. And then I started, and then I told one person from my group of friends from high school who was relatively well receptive. Um, but then I realized I had to tell mum. And then I realized that I, everyone else was going to find out because it's a country town. And mm. they already knew, so I had to tell them. And I mean, a lot of my friends were from a really tight Salvation Army religious kind of practice community and they're all lovely people but they all a couple of them in particular tried to uh, change me uh, give me some books about how to um, be more spiritual and to get rid of it Mm. um, because it just wasn't the done thing and I didn't react well to that (laughs) in fact I went through a period which is now in hindsight quite embarrassing but I went through a really strong anti-religion period which I think is quite common um, for a lot of kids in that situation where I just hated anything to do with organised religion. My mum's a practising Catholic and I would just get in these fights with her about this kind of, like, just really amateur school grade kind of like, oh, you believe in the sky, God, do you? Like this made-up man in the sky because I hated what that, how that reflected on me through my friends. Yes. Uh, You've received hate mail too. Mm, Yes. (laughs) Quite well-drawn hate mail, actually, as it turns out. No, I mean, I, I, it was when I was... So I moved back home for a year after I came out, which was not my choice, but it had to be done, unfortunately. And someone had left this picture of Jesus on the cross uh, in the letterbox because everyone knew where, where I lived. And I don't know who it was to this day, but it's like, you know, Jesus died on the cross for your sins and this is how you repay him, faggot. Um, and I remember seeing that. I, mum, I never showed it to mum, obviously, because I was home during the day. Mm. And I just remember thinking, what have I done? <laughs> like, what have I done to deserve this, really? Like, I don't know who these people are. And this is, I think, one of the important points around this, what you talk about in the stress response to discrimination, yeah. that it doesn't have to be the case that somebody is shouting faggot at you every day. Uh, it's, the, it's the fear that it might, it might happen. How did that shape you? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, and I think... So there are studies on this. It's called minority stress. And it doesn't have to be based on sexuality. It can be based on your skin (coughs) colour or anything like that, your race, um, your culture. Um, And, you know, all it takes, you don't even have to, all it takes is one person yelling faggot at you for the first time or even just the expectation that you deserve, uh, you are so uh, disgusting that people will do it. And then you are on guard every hour of every day 
uh, expecting someone to do it. Um, and there are cases where people actually do get beat up um, because they're gay. Um, I've come close, but it's, I've never been physically attacked. But it's happened to me enough where I've, you know, and I've had enough close calls where every waking hour, particularly in my early 20s, I was primed to expect aggression or hatred. And I think, again, what this does is it primes the amygdala um, to remember these stress responses. And you spend all day on edge, um, you're worried, you're hypervigilant, um, and these are all the same signs of people who were worried about being eaten by saber-toothed tigers, mm, except now mm. the body remembers it. And there is nothing, I mean, nowadays in my life, there is nothing out there to get me in the same way. Like I'm still, every now and then, someone will still yell faggot at me from a car. Would you believe it? Um, and it brings me right back to those moments. But the the stress response and having lived with it for years, mm. even after I came out, I mean, people think coming out is the end of it. It's not. It's the, it's the start. And that is, it worms its way into your DNA, into mm. your bones. And you are essentially living uh, with anxiety. Remember Barack Obama talking about in his autobiography about the thousands of petty slights to which black men are subjected in America and just things like being outside the front of a major hotel and having somebody pull up and hand you the keys to their car and just assuming that the black guy must be the valet uh, and then what that does to your view of the world and your ability to be to be generous as you, uh, and kind as you move through it. Correct. I mean, I mean, that's the kind of stuff. I mean, Wittgenstein had this great quote, the borders of my language are the borders of my world. And I think the borders of your experience are also mm. the same. I mean, what you see in the world is how you create the world. And when you see that stuff, and, you know, I can't even count the amount of times I've had even just the smallest petty little slur about being gay or effeminate, um, and sometimes well-intentioned ones as well, um, or even just being in a new job and having to come out again um, so yes. everyone knows that you don't, you know, how's your girlfriend or do you have a girlfriend? And then when they're talking about their relationships but they don't want to know about yours because yours is a bit wrong. Um, so just the little things like that, mm. they just they add up and they are um, a, a walkway to inferiority, really. Um, but I think that's all the more reason to be kind and loving. I mean, I think that's the one thing I, I always say, the one gift that being gay particularly has taught me is that it's taught me uh, respect and understanding of other minorities that I might not otherwise have had. Your mum and dad had quite different responses to you yeah. coming out. Yeah. So tell us about them. <laughs> we'll start with mum's first because hers is fun. Um, I mean, I told mum I was gay when I was on a balcony of a hotel that my friend was paying for and I drank half a cask of two-litre Stanley red wine um, which was my go-to at the time because it was cheap. Um, and I kind of just blurted out and told her, and she, God bless her, she's, <laughs> she's like, oh, darling, she's like, I don't care, I love you. I've just got one question. And I'm like, I love a good question. And she's like, was it the Ken doll I gave you when you were six? And I burst out laughing because she did give me a Ken doll for Christmas when <laughs> I was six. And I do remember that Ken doll really well. And I remember even as a six-year-old thinking, why the hell did they give me a Ken doll? <laughs> like, what are they trying to say? Um, in fact, I remember once I was trying to put the shorts on this Ken doll and I could kind of, I, I intuited mum screaming in the yard, right? But not enough to be like, what's wrong with mum? I'm mm. just like, I've got to put the shorts on Ken. 
And it turns out a brown snake had run up her leg. Um, <laughs> and she's screaming for help. But I'm like, Ken's got to have pants. Uh, <laughs> so she's thought that that turned me gay. And I'm like, well, no, um, because obviously uh, all the Barbie dolls don't turn girls into lesbians. Um, statistically speaking, it's just not how it works. Um, and then, so that was, you know, a lovely um, typical mum way of <laughs> dealing with this sudden news. I mean, I think she always had a hunch. I mean, the amount of times she used to watch Priscilla, Queen of the Desert and kind of look at me and going, isn't this a great movie, doll? <laughs> and I'd be like, yeah, it's all right. <laughs> um, and then dad she's the buses she didn't yeah, like yeah no I was going to say we don't like public transport <laughs> never had any uh, I didn't like buses because it was always a 22 hour bus ride to go see my dad on school holidays which mm. I hated um, he I mean I never told my dad and he found out through um, I don't even know how it must have been through either my brother or a friend of a friend of a friend who was on Facebook, like some extended family member or something. But he found out, and my brother, I wasn't here, but he told my brother that he thought it was disgusting and that, you know, what was wrong with Rick? What's he doing um, with this choice? Um, and innocently, my family, my brother told my mum, and my mum just innocently told me on the phone. But I remember the moment precisely um, when I heard that because I was staying, well, I was at my house in... Forest Lodge in Sydney, and I remember it was late afternoon because I had I was on holidays, and the light was coming through uh, on an angle, and I remember Mum telling me that, and it was like I'd been shot in the chest because it was like a second abandonment for me, and that was all the proof I needed and had already thought I had that I was unlovable and unloved, and I think that was the moment that I started having really bad mental health issues. How have you dealt with your mental health? We've been dealing with both depression issues and anxiety. Mm. Um, how have you managed those in um, recent years? With a great deal of difficulty. <laughs> I mean, I think, so, I mean, what ended up happening, I mean, the depression and the anxiety, I thought, were diagnoses. I mean, um, I now know, as of early this year, that they're symptoms of a much broader trauma diagnosis, um, complex PTSD. And it took me five years of seeing seven different psychologists and and being in and out of emergency rooms uh, with not one of them mentioning trauma. Um, and I wrote a whole book that mentioned the trauma of everyone else in my family mm. but never thought it would apply to me. And it wasn't until I was at a writer's festival in Geelong on a panel about trauma when one of the other writers who'd written a more scientific book about it read out this line and I thought, holy, holy hell, that's, that's me. Um, so it took me, you know, the, the mental health system in Australia is appalling. Um, you know, I went through so many six plus four mental health plan sessions with my GP um, and then ran out and then had to abandon treatment or I would abandon the treatment because it just wasn't trauma-informed. It wasn't getting at what mm. My, mm. my problem was. Um, and it took me learning, I think... I think applying, I mean, I'd shut myself off from the world for a long time and I had refused to hug people or love them or be loved because I didn't think I deserved it. And I think automatically around the same time that I found out my brother, my dad thought I was disgusting, I decided uh, subconsciously that I needed to be loved and I started applying that and being really deliberate about it. And I think that was a turning point. It wasn't an overnight solution, but it allowed me to start accepting treatment and responding to treatment and um, kind of just changing the way I viewed the world. I mean, there was a lot of hate there, not for anyone else, but for myself. 
and that's really hard to overcome. And for you, it's been a combination of talk therapy and medications. Correct, yeah. So I'm on medications. I mean, I think uh, I needed to be on the medication when I first... I mean, when I first started breaking down, I mean, I wasn't sleeping at all. I was having panic attacks five, six, seven times a day. They would wake me up. Like, I couldn't even go to sleep to get away from them. Uh, They would just wake me up at 1am in the middle of, like, an actual severe panic. And it's, you know... People hear panic attack and they think, oh, they panic because they miss their bus. But a panic attack is literally like it's a feeling that you're about to die and it's a feeling that you are on the precipice of this unending doom. And it is I can't explain it any better than that. It is the most horrifying feeling I've ever felt and you can't get away from it. Uh, and so I was just spent in every way. I was exhausted. I was still going to work um, as much as I could. I was mostly mentally vacant but I was there and I needed to be there because otherwise I had too much time in my own head and then I'd go home alone at night and I'd stay up all night and I would make these panicked phone calls to people or send awful text messages um, because I just wasn't sure that I wanted to be there anymore and uh, the medication helped me to sleep in the first instance and settle down some of the worst parts of the symptoms Um, and then I tried... You know, you never know what medication will work for anyone. So, like, I had to go on one first, which was, like, being tranquilised, but necessary for three months, and then got off that and then on to another, um, and then talk therapy um, and mindfulness. Uh, Mindfulness has been a huge help. And we should say for listeners for whom this is raising issues for themselves Mm -hmm. that uh, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Uh, The impact of uh, the 1994 uh, burning of of your brother also had a, a significant cost to him. Uh, tell us about uh, how Toby's life uh, took a turn for the worse. Yeah. I mean, the thing the thing about that day is that we both, Toby and I both went through trauma and we both experienced that trauma in different ways. His, in that first instance, was physical, um, having been, uh, and that's one of the key indicators of, of further um, disadvantage in life is there's been physical trauma in your life. Um, but then we both dealt with the separation of our family differently and my brother Toby was my dad's favorite um, my dad lived for for him and I think that accident shattered the the very thin carapace that my dad used to shield himself against the world and I think it left him totally and utterly unable to cope and rather than tell anyone about that he shut off the family and abandoned us and I think that really hurt my brother early on. It would end up hurting me in different ways later. But for those years when it really mattered to my brother, he wasn't there. And my brother was dealing with this horrifically painful mm. accident that, you know, even when you get out of hospital after two and a half months, there's another three or four years of bandage management, pressure um, bandages that have to be worn and wounds that have to be dressed. And just absolutely horrific. And, you know, he lost the cattle station that my brother adored. I mean, he was an outdoor boy. He was the one that dragged me into all the dangerous situations. I earned a reprieve after this in many ways. And so, you know, he turned, he dealt with it um, by going to drugs. Um, And, you know, first, as ever, it was marijuana. uh, And then it was ecstasy and MDMA. And he got done early on before he became an addict himself. He got done with a for a really large supply operation that he was just a cog in the machine of, but he spent three months in prison for that, and he was, um, you know, driving up and down New South Wales, Brisbane, 
selling. Um, you know, I, I actually bought some off him at a gay nightclub in Brisbane. And, the, and that was the first night I realised he was a drug dealer and the first night he realised I was gay. So um, we, uh, <laughs> we parted ways that night, um, safe in the knowledge that the other was doing something uh, that mum probably didn't want to know about. Your secret is safe with me. <laughs> yes, correct. Um, and I feel bad about that because I'm like, you know, I had an inkling, but here I was with confirmation and rather than be a brother and say, don't do that, I'm like, can I have three pills, please? But then he turned to ice, yeah. which is uh, much, uh, much worse. Uh, ice is a whole other story, and ice is insidious. And it turned my brother... My brother was always a lovely boy. Like, he was a troublemaker, but even the school principal loved him um, because he, he knew that my brother was fundamentally a good man, a good boy, and he, he still is. But ice takes away your character entirely. It turns you into something that's almost like a Lovecraftian kind of horror... Um, stereotype and it, it robs you of uh, higher order thinking and it turns you into a violent, abusive, totally unpredictable menace. And at this point in time, you know, he's living underneath my mum's house, um, uh, which is a Queenslander house, so it's just concrete underneath. And he's kind of set up a little makeshift camp and mum early on allows it because it's her son and then later on it becomes scary and she's an anxious person. And she starts to fret every waking hour about what's going on. His friends are there. They ignore all of her boundaries. Um, and she's terrified. And, you know, this goes on for years where he just completely abuses her trust, um, turns her into a shell of her former self. She has to get a domestic violence order out against him a couple of times, well, one time, and then tries again. But is just so broken by that process because she... She's never had any contact with the criminal justice system in her life. She's a, she's a goody two-shoes. I asked her once what the most illegal thing she's ever done was. And she thought about it for a really long time. I'm like, oh, God, this will be good. And then she says, I think I was drunk in public once. I'm like, all right. <laughs> um, so my brother, you know, my brother, and ice is so addictive. You just want more and more and more of it. And you couldn't reason with him. Um, it's like he, he had been stolen from us. And in fact, it felt like an early death. Rick, just to uh, conclude a few final questions, um, what advice would you give to your teenage self or indeed for someone listening to this who's, as you were, uh, a young gay man growing up in a country town where they feel as though they don't know anyone else who's gay? Yeah. <laughs> uh, good question. Uh, God, it's so hard. I mean, I think what all gay people know or queer people know after the fact is that it's almost always better than you think. Um, people are fundamentally kind and decent. Um, and even if they're not, don't use it as an excuse to turn poisonous on the world because that will only make your life worse. Um, love, be kind, be open-hearted um, and, and find the good where you can because it is there, um, even if you don't know it yet. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? I used to believe in God. Um, in fact, I was quite a keen participant in the Catholic Church um, I like grassroots Catholics. Um, I think they're really good people. Um, but I used to be—I used to go to church and be on the reading roster. It was my only place to do public speaking in town. And and I wish I could still believe in something like that. I do. Um, I just don't. And I think life would be a lot better if I could. Um, I do instead kind of believe in uh, something more interesting. I think, which is the the cosmos, universe. Um, I'm not spiritual about it, but it is so big and amazing um, that I think it's replaced religion for me. When are you most happy? 
when I'm writing uh, in the middle of a really cold winter, preferably in Canberra where it's a proper winter, uh, with the fire on, um, and then I know that I've got dinner that night with mates. What's the most important thing you do to stay physically and mentally healthy? Mm, physically, don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I think I probably I do need to start going to the gym again. Uh, mentally, I think uh, again it's kind of being open and vulnerable with my friends. Um, I used to be so shut off, um, and it, it poisoned me, and kind of made me toxic and my relationships toxic. And now, the best thing I've ever done with my life and continue to do is tell people I love them. It's amazing how being vulnerable with others helps transform a conversation and have people open up to you. I think it's at the root of all dysfunction, people's inability to be vulnerable, particularly Mm. men, um, but not just men, Um, and particularly my own family. I've seen what happens when people are not given permission to do that because it is ironically gay, um, and homophobia has a lot to answer for for straight men as well. How do you create those situations where where you are opening up and be, being vulnerable with people? Do you I, I, sort of share an unexpected y- story, yeah. or what? Do I've you... always been a real open book, and uh, you know, people throughout life have been so surprised. Often, when the, when I'll tell them something, they'll be like, oh, "I wouldn't have said that uh, because it's embarrassing, or because." They feel like they'll judge you as being weak. But really, um, I've never had any bad experiences with it. And the first time I tried to do it, it was like a drug. I mean, I'm like, well, I'm going to keep doing that because it feels great for me. It's kind of a selfish manoeuvre. But also people kind of, you see that there have been no awful reactions and that being Mm. vulnerable is actually um, a really beautiful thing. And everyone, having written the book, I mean, everyone's got something going on. Everyone, whether they're rich, poor, um, black, brown or brindle, as my grandfather used to say, um, Everyone's got something, and I think being kind and being kind enough to recognise that and then offer yourself up first um, is a beautiful way of going about life. Rick, my final question is usually what person has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? But I want to ask you uh, the same question in a different way. Uh, Why is Deb Morton a queer icon? (laughs) Did you listen to that? I did indeed. My mummy, I mean, honestly, I mean, everyone thinks their mum is the best, right? Um, except for those who don't have relationships with them. But, I mean, my mum is genuinely uh, the most important person in my life, not just because she kept us alive and sacrificed everything in her world, but genuinely because she has such a childlike curiosity about the world. Um, and I, I, she always used to joke. I mean, she called me an alien, right, because she couldn't understand how I came into the family. I mean, I, she's like, you don't take after me or your father. Um, and I never really knew where I got any of my passions from. And it took me a long time to realise that it was from her. I mean, she is a storyteller. She is a curious person. And I always said, you know, uh, she doesn't know a lot about the world, but she's curious as hell. And I think the ignorance is not a bad thing. It's only a bad thing if you don't want to know more. And you should never judge someone for not having read something or done something. But if they're, they're closed off to hearing about it, then that's a problem. But I learned all of those special gifts from mum. And uh, I think being so lovely and kind and curious and open is at the very heart of the queer community and therefore Deb Morton is a queer icon. Rick Morton's book is 100 Years of Dirt. Rick, thanks so much for taking the time to appear on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed that. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.